Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Karima Talwar-Kapoor. And I'm Alexi White. We're going to be talking today about a sector that we have all probably interacted with at some point in our lives. It's the community or voluntary sector. Whether you're a client receiving services and advice from a local nonprofit organization or charity, a staff member at one of these organizations, volunteering or working with your own organizations to help support the work of community agencies, we all have engaged with the sector at some point in our lives. The sector has been hit hard during COVID-19, and this means that people who require support from these organizations some of the most vulnerable in our communities, are also not getting the level of support they need. We've got two great guests to help discuss this during today's pod. We've got Stephanie Prosik, the Senior Manager of Research, Public Affairs, Public Policy and Evaluation at the United Way Greater Toronto, and Anjum Sultana, Director of Public Policy and Strategic Communications at the YWCA Canada. Welcome, Stephanie and Anjum, to the pod. How are you both? Doing well. I, I just got uh, access to childcare, so I'm in seventh heaven. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Let's. We'll dig into that a little bit later. Anjum, how are you? I'm great. Uh, it's great to be here. I've been a longtime uh, follower of the great work both of you have been doing on this podcast and your co-host, so excited to finally be on it. So thanks so much for the invite. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. Before we get into it, let's set the context. The Philanthropist has two thrilling overviews, if I can call it that, of the history of the voluntary sector in Canada. While I encourage you all to go to the Philanthropist website to take a read, I'll provide a bit of a Coles Note synopsis since World War II. This reconstruction era, heralded among social policy experts for the construction of important social policy programs like unemployment benefits, senior benefits, public health care or Medicare, also saw the growth of the voluntary sector. Governments needed specific types of programs and services to be provided by local nonprofits and charities as a way of maintaining a sightline on community needs and trends. On the other hand, the voluntary sector needed a reliable source of funds and felt that they were in a position to influence government policy on issues that affected their organizations the most. While the voluntary sector grew and was responsible for both service delivery and policy advocacy, governments did not abdicate their responsibility to the public. Things started shifting in the late 1980s and 1990s. This is often referred to as the retrenchment era, when the idea of smaller decentralized governments became the ethos by which we continue to shape our politics and policies today. The role of government in public services retreated and the role of the charitable and nonprofit sector grew. However, the reliance on the charitable and nonprofit sector came without sustained increases in funding, flexibility to change services depending on contextual changes, and limits to advocacy. All of this remains true today, and the relationship between governments and the sector has become more complex. Governments shift funding priorities depending on how political and public sentiments change, and they try to balance demands for greater accountability with bureaucracy and a dizzying amount of transfer payment directives. According to Imagine Canada, there are 170,000 registered charities and nonprofits across Canada, representing almost $8.1 billion in Canada's GDP. Despite the sector's impact, it has been struggling for years, if not decades, as a result of dwindling public resources, the increasing complexity of their work, 
over-reliance on private donors to make ends meet. Like all other sectors, the COVID-19 pandemic has just exacerbated these issues. And these issues are of concern for people across the political spectrum. In John Iveson's recent article in the National Post, Iveson highlights that the third pillar of Canadian society is in danger of collapsing, recognizing the unique role that the sector plays in our communities. To respond, the federal government established a $350 million emergency community support fund to provide support to nonprofits and charities struggling to make ends meet. Let's start by sort of setting the context a little bit. Both United Ways and YWCAs have been pillars in communities, both large and small across Canada. How do you fit into the broader charitable or nonprofit sector? Sure, I can start with United Way. Um, so United Way Greater Toronto um, is the largest funder of social services in the GTA outside of government. We fund a network of about 270 community agencies on the ground who are ma- meeting basic need. At the same time, we're also a community impact organization. So while we fund people to meet this need on the ground, we also do the kind of um, in-depth systemic work to understand why people actually need these services, why people are vulnerable, and figure out cross-sectoral solutions to actually address that need. Uh, so thank you so much, Grima, for that great um, introduction. Um, and I, uh, I'll say um, this year has been a very special year for the YWC Canada. It's our 150th year anniversary. So we've been around almost as long as what we call Canada here on Turtle Island. And so uh, some of the work that we do across the country, so we have 32 member associations who operate in nine provinces and two territories. And through that, we get a sense of what's happening across the country through this pan-Canadian perspective. Um, But ultimately, our work is always looking at how do we advance gender equity? So part of the work is through the essential services that have continued to operate during the pandemic. So we have, for example, 34 shelters across the country uh, with a gender focus, um, many of which are also shelters that serve women and children fleeing violence. Uh, we also have affordable housing across the country. Another key element of our work, and this has been really something uh, we've seen accelerate in a very uh a concerning way um, is our work around violence, uh, addressing violence against women and gender-based violence more broadly. Um, we do a lot of prevention programming, a lot of uh, support services for survivors, um, but that's something also that during this pandemic, we've actually seen increase the, the needs for these services. And finally, and I think something that we'll be looking towards more in the post-pandemic recovery, uh, we do a lot of work around skills training and um, job search and employment programs. So Uh, That's something also that we're we're thinking about with the post-pandemic lens as well. Awesome. Thanks. It's interesting to have both of your organizations on um, because of the both both of you have such wide perspectives on how the community sector is faring as a whole. And and, the uh, as you said, uh, Anjum, the the YWCA has that uh, on the ground perspective as well with all the direct services that are provided, whereas United Way plays a bit of a different role in in the system in terms of being a a huge source of funding for so many community services, uh, community organizations across across the country. So I'm really pleased to have both of you guys on and uh, excited to get your take on some things. I wonder before we move into um, some of the specifics of the current situation with COVID, can we talk a little bit about what your organization's relationships are like with government um, and how those have changed over time, specifically uh, thinking about things both like funding, which is sort of the obvious piece, but also I'm interested in your thoughts on the, the sort of the philosophical relationship between 
government and the community sector in general. How do you think the perspective of the role of the community sector uh, has changed in the past, is changing today? Where, where sort of, where are we right now in that? And do you have any thoughts on where, where you see that going? So I think uh, when I think about the relationship between the government and the community sector, I think about how government often, you know, you talked about funding and government certainly funds so many critical programs um, and services for people who are vulnerable. A lot of these programs and services were created in the 60s and the 70s when the population of Canada looked really different uh, than it was today and the need was different. Um, and so as need has grown um, and uh, as the population has changed and evolved, I think that that's really meant that the community sector has been able to step in and really fill these gaps and provide more tailored services. The community sector often has the credibility on the ground um, to be able to mobilize people quickly to provide yeah, kind of unique, uh, unique services for, for populations whose needs aren't being met by um, current government programming. And so I think that's, that's a really critical role that the, um, that the sector plays right now and should continue to play, but won't be able to play without additional support. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk um, about the growing social deficit that's, that's coming of unmet needs. And so in order to meet those needs, I think all of us will have to work for, from each sector to really help meet that need on the ground and help the community sector actually have the kind of stabilized funding to be able to continue that need. But I also think that uh, one role of the sector that's often overlooked is the, the role it plays in terms of analyzing public policy in terms of educating uh, different groups from coming from different perspectives, from different sectors on what's actually happening in the government right now and how we can improve policies to actually um, serve people in the community better. And so that, that role that the community sector plays as a liaison almost between the government and and community is so critical and it's often overlooked, but I think that um, the community sector needs to be more and more involved in this to make sure that poverty keeps staying on the agenda of all levels of government, for example. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. Um, at YWC, we recently actually just released our new tagline, which is National Advocacy Community Action. And I think that really highlights the way we work. I, I see our role as part of civil society as being an accountability partner to government. Government often has uh, many visions and, and uh, goals that it aspires and strives to accomplish. I see uh, our organization as being that partner that helps them see where the gaps are, helps them see what who is missing and which perspectives have not been considered. For example, uh, a lot of the work that we do, we're always pushing for an intersectional gender-based analysis on policies, programs, um, and practices that the government pushes forward. So we're able to identify, um, you know, government has put out this, this policy, um, but does it actually work for the people we serve? And uh, just, just a comment on the people that the YWCA serves, we have a gendered focus, um, but we often think about um, people who have been historically disenfranchised, people who have been made vulnerable because of structures, so structurally vulnerable, um, and also um, doing our piece to inter interrogate 
um, you know, systems of power, what causes marginalization and, you know, trying to address the root causes of issues. So when I think about our work around gender-based violence, yes, we support people um, that require services such as our shelter services. And yes, we provide support services such as counseling, but we also really try to think about what is happening in our society that are creating these conditions of violence and, and you know, the patriarchy that is contributing to that. Uh, so we, we try our best to not just provide services, but also look upstream. So I think that's that's part of the role that um, civil society plays is that accountability piece. But also, I would say in ensuring a thriving society where people feel that their perspectives are actually addressed. So um, speaking to Stephanie's point around civic literacy, actually breaking down public policy in a way that makes it accessible to people who don't you know, do this full time or um, may have so many other challenges that they're experiencing. So what can we do to make that that process easier? I just wanted to um, add to that. Thanks, Anjum, for making that point, uh, identifying the gaps and the piece about accountability, because I think that really speaks to the fact that the sector is just a wealth of has a wealth of expertise, of connections, of resources and so can be a really strong partner in terms of developing developing these solutions and helping helping others understand where the gaps are and creating those solutions like Anjum spoke to with her programming. United Way has done um, some similar work with community benefit agreements to really connect people who have multiple barriers with employment opportunities on infrastructure projects. Um, so working in partnership with governments with labor, with the community sector to ensure that people have wraparound supports and have uh, enough funding and connections to actually make make a full holistic program work that follows people, um, you know, to the point where they actually have a job is really important. And I think those types of programs and services wouldn't be as effective without um, community, uh, without community services sector at, um, at the table. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, having seen it from within the Ontario government, both in the civil service side and the political side, the, the important role that you guys in your roles play that all of the community sector plays across policy areas in uh, holding the government accountable and being that voice in drawing attention to issues is so important. And, and I agree it's undervalued as, as a, an important piece of what, what the sector contributes to the overall conversation. Uh, and it's interesting Sometimes the sector is positioned as an alternative to government, often in people's minds. Uh, and there's a, a tension that, that sometimes people identify between, you know, a strong uh, social safety net provided by government versus a strong community sector. Uh, and we had Professor Shirley Tillotson on a while back, and she's done a lot of work on the community sector and charities in Ontario and the history of that. And her work suggests that, in fact, there's a mutually reinforcing positive feedback loop between the two mm-hmm. and that the evolution of the community services sector, community um, organization sector, really laid the groundwork for the substantial in, uh, increase in income taxes that we saw in the sort of middle of the 20th century. Uh, and that uh, it's not it's not a fact that if people see a strong community sector that they then don't think that government's important, that actually um, both of these things go hand in hand. So I, I do really believe in that, that symbiotic relationship between the two. But at the same time, it's interesting 
the uh, different philosophical perspectives that uh, different political parties bring. So, I mean, uh, maybe just to poke at this issue a little bit more, uh, we've seen, as Grima said, so John Iveson in the uh, National Post came out with a very strong piece talking about the importance of bailing out the community sector uh, from a, a relatively sort of conservative viewpoint as to the importance of the sector. We've also seen, uh, after Andrew Scheer criticized the federal government for outsourcing its uh, big student grant program to the, the WE charity, um, Sean Spear, uh, one of the intellectual uh, leaders in the Conservative Party today nationally, came out uh, with a piece criticizing that, saying uh, you guys as conservatives really should be behind more outsourcing of government uh, services to the charity sector, to, to um, community uh, organizations. Uh, you know, what gives? Uh, and we've seen the NDP consistently criticize the government for, for this, uh, this outsourcing, uh, saying that the civil service really should be the ones delivering these services. So how do you guys see that tension? Uh, I know it's a, it's a tricky one, but to, to what extent have you seen this being symbiotic? To what extent is there a sort of a choice that has to be made between providing services through uh, the civil service versus through the community sector? So I think this gets back to my earlier point about the realities of um, the way that government provides um, services. Government has to provide services in more broad brush strokes and can't necessarily provide the type of tailored work or tailored services and supports. But again, I think this is really about working in partnership and not really thinking about um, services being outsourced to the, uh, to the community sector. We have to think about where the government should play a role and where the community sector should play a role and how we can work together. And so an example of um, some of the recent COVID funding is, um, you know, the provincial government has stepped up and has been providing food security funding for seniors. And so United Way has worked to complement that funding by providing culturally specific meals. So both of those things are really important to, to get food funded to seniors, but also to be able to tailor to populations who uh, may not fit as well into that broader government funding so that everybody is getting their needs met um, and that we're able to complement one another. Yeah, and I, I think it is fundamentally about what is each sector well positioned to do? You know, I, I'm a firm believer about where is the service going to be delivered the most effectively. Um, I think it is a very tricky, tricky tension to navigate because for us, uh, you know, we often say like we, we're happy to essentially work ourselves out of work um, uh, as, as a sector in the sense that if we're able to address the root causes of the concerns that are, are impacting the people we serve, that is a good thing. Um, and that's what we're aiming for. Speaking specifically to Indigenous communities, um, diverse Indigenous communities, Black and racialized folks, that there is uh, uh, some mistrust sometimes with certain types of services provided by government because of the historical uh, nature of things like residential schools and what have you. So people may feel a sense of distrust. So that is where civil society may be better positioned to provide that service. I think, you know, civil society is so critical. Essentially, when we look at all the different pillars of society, um, government being one of them, there needs to be a, a force that pushes back and in a, in a way that's constructive, that is uh, aiming towards um, actually seeing government realize the visions that it set out for itself. So I think, I think, yeah, this conversation about outsourcing is interesting, but I think ultimately we have to think about, you know, what does civil society do? Yes, services are part of the package or part of the work that we do, but I think it's something broader than that around um, ensuring that people's concerns, everyday people's concerns 
are actually um, listened to in a way that individually people might not be listened to in the same way. Um, so we provide that that space for that civic engagement. Thanks, Rose. I think um, my only sightline into this is sort of thinking about what the history of the public service and funding around public services looks like and the parallel funding of the community sector. And so I was thinking of Sean Spears' recent article in the National Post on the federal government's debacle with the WE charity. And his critique was that not so much of the procurement process, which he was you know, articulates is was a problem, but rather that not understanding the role of civil society in delivering these important programs is not really understanding statecraft and the ways in which you build a social fabric that enables that enables people to get the types of services they need without over reliance on government and public services. And so I think, and in our intro, we spoke a little bit about what the heyday of building both public programs and the community sector looked like. And, and in recent decades, sort of seeing that shift. So it may not necessarily, it's not necessarily about outsourcing, but it's, but I think for some folks, it, it certainly is about decentralizing the role of government. And as as you both sort of say, for some communities and for many um, people who have been marginalized by by violent structures, this is it's a good thing to be able to get access to to local services through nonprofits or through charities. But I do think that the challenge is is that we've over the past couple of decades have seen dwindling public resources being dedicated not only to public services, but also to the nonprofit and charitable sector that really do need um, dedicated streams of funding to to make ends meet. And like the rest of the world, the the pandemic has really exacerbated some of the issues that the that the sector faces. And if you had to sort of identify your top three, what were or are some of these problems? And do you think the pandemic is going to create opportunities or windows for change? So in terms of what the, I think the top top three are, um, I think they're kind of connected for me. You know, we talked about how need is is growing. And I know Imagine Canada a couple of months ago, I think in May, um, came out and said that uh, need for social services during the pandemic has grown by 42% while capacity has wow. gone down. Wow. Um, and, you know, we really talked about, and capacity has gone down by about as much as well. And that was only the first two months. So we can only imagine that, you know, about four months into this, that need is continuing to grow. And, and who needs social services is changing. We have... Uh, anecdotal stories from some of our agencies already of, um, you know, local community business owners, for example, who were supporting their their local community agencies uh, financially in the past. And now those business owners are going to those agencies for help. So it's also new populations who need services. So I think the need is there. I also think one of the major trends that's been happening in the GTA, and I think is reflective Canada-wide, is that income inequality has been growing. 
So as the income divide has grown, that also means that access to opportunity has become more difficult to come by. And when I'm talking about access to opportunity, I'm not talking about necessarily like the opportunity to better yourself, quote unquote, but I'm talking about the opportunities such as stable housing, good quality, secure jobs, you know, being able to put food on the table, access to, to that kind of those kinds of basic needs is more difficult. We, you know, our research has shown from the Opportunity Equation series that when access to opportunity um, diminishes, it's things like um, your background and your circumstances. So things like your race, your postal code take on more importance in terms of your ability to access that opportunity. Um, and we saw that play out in our last report, which showed that incomes for young people, for racialized groups, and for immigrants in the GTA area had either uh, stagnated or gone down between 1980 and 2015, which is also, you know, contrary to what we generally uh, generally think is happening with those populations. Um, and then the third piece, which is connected to those, is um, the growth of precarious employment. So more and more people uh, in our last um, study, we found about 37% of the working age population in the GTHA were working in some degree of precarious employment. So jobs with uncertainty, with insecurity, they may not have benefits or training attached to them. And this has made people already more vulnerable. And this trend is going to continue after the pandemic. So for example, with childcare, thinking about with precariously employed people, the kinds of childcare that they need often ten- tends to be flexible childcare that moves when their schedule moves. So starting to, you know, refocus on how we can actually support people there. So I think those trends are going to continue, but that my glimmer of hope uh, for, for this moving forward is that there is tremendous public will gathering and political will gathering to support the sector. I think the $350 million um, ECSF is great leadership on the part of the federal government to be able to fund programs and services. I think moving forward, it's about thinking about how we can continue to sustain the sector. So help help agencies actually keep their lights on and um, pay their staff um, so that they can be enabled to provide the programs and services that are happening. I would say areas that on one hand, uh, I'm quite concerned with as we move forward in this post-pandemic future, as well as areas that provide me glimmers of hope are the following. One is just thinking about gender equality. It is the 25th year anniversary of the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action. So this is the most comprehensive gender equality uh, statement or set of recommendations, if you will. And it's unfortunate that this actually might be the year where we see some of the most dramatic reversal of gains um, when it comes to gender equality. And I'll say the reason for this are, are uh, multiple, but one of this is, um, you know, and uh, Stephanie alluded to this, the, the lack of access to affordable, accessible, high quality childcare. This was a concern well before the pandemic, but it's definitely accelerated. And many would say, and I, I would agree that, you know, childcare is a sector. If you don't get childcare right, it really impedes every other sector's ability to get back to work. It's what um, is, many would say, restarting the engine of our economy is is uh, dependent on childcare. And 
when I think about the measures that have been taking place or haven't taken place when it comes to childcare or even school closures, it really shows that we don't actually value this type of labor, this labor that is so fundamental to to uh, what we need. And so, you know, if, if we were talking about um, specific things the government can do, it's having a national framework and action plan around childcare so that it is accessible, that it is high quality and it is affordable. There is an OECD benchmark that at least one percent of a country's GDP should be directed towards early learning and childcare. We're not there yet, um, but that would be one specific step that could be taken forward. Um, I think also another issue that we've seen is the the rise in domestic violence and just gender-based violence across the board. Um, And this is something that really uh, we need to have a national action plan around. This is something YWC and others have been calling for for a very long time. I think something else that we need to be really tracking and and thinking about in a a strategic way is what does the skills landscape look like post-pandemic? So in March, um, 63% of the jobs that were lost were lost by women workers, many of whom were disproportionately working in sectors such as uh, hospitality, uh, tourism, food services, retail. And what's interesting is, you know, as we move forward in this post-pandemic future, we don't know if those jobs are going to come back in the same numbers or if at all. So that means all of these um, workers, primarily women workers, are not only out of a job temporarily, that actually might be permanent. So we have to start to think about where people who are displaced from their jobs, where they can go forward. And I think civil society can offer um, great support in that regard um, because of pre-existing relationships, uh, focus on skills programming, um, but also that that view towards um, how do you work with different communities. And finally, I think about the charitable sector. A great report that I encourage everyone to read is a roadmap towards uh I think it's a strong charitable sector. It's a Senate report. Um, Ratna, uh, Senator Ratna Amdavar is, is one of the chairs, and they have a series of 42 recommendations around how you can have uh, a stronger charitable sector. And I think part of the reason why historically um, the sector has been not prioritized is that it is uh, majority women. Um, so over 80% of workers in the nonprofit and charitable sector are women. And um, there is research that shows that as, as a sector becomes more and more feminized, that labor appears to start to become more and more devalued. And I think this is something we need to urgently um, tackle. Um, I'll leave it there, but I think this, this gives a sense of some of the things that we need to look towards. So maybe just to uh, close things off, how do you see the opportunities that are presented by the pandemic playing out for for your sector in the future if you could sort of look in your crystal ball for a second do you are you optimistic about change coming do you think that sort of our collective consciousness has been raised that things have to change as a result of this or do you see sort of a window of opportunity closing possibly um, and that creating some worry that some of these challenges that have been exacerbated won't perhaps get the the attention they deserve as governments inevitably shift toward further austerity and that that kind of thing so I think that's a great question. I think um, we are going to, um, you know, as Anjum referred to earlier, we're going to have to hold people accountable. And I think that requires us holding all sectors accountable to ensure that we continue to to fight fiercely for the people who are being most impacted by COVID. So low-income people or people in low-income neighborhoods, 
racialized groups, um, especially uh, Black and Indigenous groups, women, young people, all these key groups that are already showing that they're, you know, feeling the disproportionate burden of these impacts. We're going to have to push really hard in order to ensure that COVID doesn't continue to just deepen these um, these already challenging inequities and to really take hold of this opportunity to reverse course. What makes me feel really hopeful, uh, in addition to the fact that, you know, uh, there is this building public will and political will to, um, to support the sector, is the fact that there is so much innovative work going on at the sector level. You know, we've talked, I think, throughout this, um, throughout this time about the fact that the sector plays a really important role in identifying gaps. But it is important, I think, to talk about the, the role in filling the gaps as well to ensure that people who wouldn't have gotten their needs met are actually able to get their needs met. It's a, such a critical role of the, of the sector, and I see a lot of hope in that going forward. Great. And yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's also depending on the day, uh, you know, some days I'm a bit more uh, skeptical, but on most days I'm optimistic. And part of it is that the level of large scale consciousness of things like systemic racism, of things like gender inequities, um, there's been more, I think, discussion and just rhetoric around this than I've ever seen. And I'm hopeful that that means that there's longstanding change that's that's coming. And there's a growing chorus of people um, in Canada, but also globally, calling for a feminist economic recovery plan. And we've actually seen already in the state of Hawaii, um, they've actually passed a feminist economic recovery plan that their status of women commission put together. And that's something I think offers some hope, thinking about policy solutions in a way where we don't actually just, you know, use our pre-existing playbook. We actually start to think, start to think about things differently. And I've been heartened by the types of uh, positive response we've started to see uh, you know, from many sectors of society, not just nonprofit and charities, but also the government, um, uh, different levels of government, as well as the private sector. So I think that is um, a place where there is uh, opportunity. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for this next kind of phase of our uh, society, because I think the things that should have been priorities or perhaps uh, were important, but perhaps were overshadowed by other concerns, I think they're going to start to bubble up to the front, uh, to the top. So I'm excited and hopeful, but I think it also requires long-standing work, um, which I'm ready to do. And I know many sectors and, and partners are. So I'm looking forward to that work. Great. Thanks so much, both. And on that optimistic note, just want to remind folks listening that that was Stephanie Prosik, the Senior Manager of Research, Public Affairs, Public Policy and Evaluation at the United Way Greater Toronto, and Anjum Sultana, Director of Public Policy and Strategic Communications at YWCA Canada. And that's all for today's episode. This Friday, we'll be back with our weekly news roundup, so be sure to tune in. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Ontario Loud is Sam Andre, Alvin Tejo, Chris Martin, Alexi White, and me, Karima Talwar Kapoor. We are supported by amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. 
To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca and click on the Patreon link. As always, thanks again for listening.